This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Okay, let's review uh, what we studied yesterday afternoon. What was the twofold mission of Jesus when he came to this earth? To live a perfect life in our place and to suffer death in our place. In other words, he came to live for us and he came to die for us. What was the devil's mission? The devil's mission was the opposite. To try and keep Jesus from living his perfect life and to try and keep Jesus from offering his life as a sacrifice at the moment indicated in Bible prophecy. Now, which four methods did the devil use to try and keep Jesus from living and from dying? Well, first of all, he tried to what? He tried to kill him on several occasions before his hour came to give his life. What was the second method that he used? He tried to infect him with the virus of sin because if Jesus sinned, he would be an imperfect sacrifice. And so his death would not be worth anything to us. What was the third method that the devil used? He tried to get Jesus to gain the kingdom by following a different path. Remember, by taking over the throne and not dying, but by adopting a different method. And what was the fourth method that the devil used? Tried to discourage him in such a way that Jesus would pick up and leave and allow the human race to perish. And that's particularly clear in the Garden of Gethsemane battle. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Jesus was tempted to just pick up and leave and allow the human race to perish. And uh, thankfully, none of the methods worked. Because when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, and then he said to his Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, Jesus had lived a perfect life and he had paid the debt of sin. In other words, he had provided the benefits of the atonement, as Ellen White calls him. Now, as we noticed yesterday, Jesus resurrected and with him resurrected also a group, a multitude of individuals. Ellen White identifies them as martyrs. Martyrs who died from the beginning of human history all the way down to the times of Christ. Now we can only speculate about who those were. Maybe Abel was there, first martyr. Maybe John the Baptist was there. We don't know. He was a martyr that died before Christ did. Uh, But uh, Ellen White does identify them as martyrs who stood for the truth from the beginning of history till the times of Christ. Now, uh, I would like us to take a look Now, at what happened after the resurrection of Christ. More specifically, what happened 40 days days after Jesus resurrected at the ascension of Christ. Because he spent 40 days here after his resurrection. And for this, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 4. So I invite you to go with me to Revelation chapter 4. And we're going to go through this chapter verse by verse, and then we will go on to chapter 5 and also look at this chapter verse by verse. Now notice verse 1, Revelation 4. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Notice it doesn't say that the door opened at some point. It says that the door is standing open in heaven. And then it says, And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, I will show you things which must take place after this. And so I want you to visualize an open door in heaven, it says, and of course that door leads into some building because there's not just a freestanding door. A door leads into a building. Now, he goes through the door, and I want you to notice what he sees inside the door. This is Revelation chapter 4 and verse 2. Immediately, John says, I was in the spirit, that means he was in vision, 
And behold, a throne set up in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So you're seeing this door is open. John goes through the open door in vision, and inside the door he sees a throne, and on the throne there is one individual seated. Now, I'd like to ask the question, where did Jesus locate himself when he ascended to heaven? Let's go back to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 21. Let's notice where Jesus went when he ascended to heaven. It says there in Revelation 3.21, immediately before chapter 4, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame. Now, when did Jesus overcome, and where did he overcome? He overcame on earth, right? Through his perfect life and his death for sin. So it says, as I also overcame, and notice, and sat down with my Father on his throne. So when Jesus ascended to heaven, how many people were seated on the throne? Two. God the Father and Jesus, according to Revelation 3 and verse 21. However, in Revelation chapter 4, we find that there's only one seated on the throne. And that one person who is seated on the throne, as we study the context, was none other than God the Father. And so immediately we ask the question, where was Jesus in the scene of Revelation chapter 4? He was not seated there on the throne. Well, let's pursue this and examine it. Let's go to verse 3. Are you understanding the question that I'm asking? Is it perhaps true that Jesus has not arrived yet to sit with his Father on his throne? Let's go to verse 3. And he who sat there was like a jasper and sardius stone. Jasper and sardius are red, deep red colors. And of course, God is surrounded by fire, so this, this is the idea. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So you're, you're, you're going through this door. You're seeing a throne. There's one seated on the throne. Above the throne, there's a rainbow. The throne is surrounded by, by red, by fire. And then I want you to notice in verse 4 that around the throne are certain individuals. It says in verse 4, And around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So now you can imagine that around the throne are 24 thrones, and upon those 24 thrones are seated the 24 elders. And we're told that they were clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now let's skip verse 5. We're going to come back to verse 5. And let's go to verse 6, and we'll also read verse 8. Because there's another group of beings that are present there. It says there in verse 6 that there are four living creatures. Let's read that verse. It says, Before the thrones there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. Now the question is, who are these living creatures? Well, verse 8 will give us two characteristics that will help us identify who they are. Verse 8 says, The four living creatures, each having six wings, that's an important detail, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So two characteristics, they have six wings and they sing holy, holy, holy. Now there's no doubt whatsoever that these are seraphim. In other words, these are majestic angels. You say, how do we know that? Well, we have to go back to Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 3 where you have the very same two characteristics. Isaiah 6 is speaking about the call of the prophet Isaiah. And it says there in chapter 6 and verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it, now notice, stood seraphim. 
Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the living beings or living creatures that are there are seraphim. And incidentally, even though they're not specifically mentioned here, the cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 1 are described in very similar terms, except the cherubim have four wings, but they're full of eyes. They have many of the same characteristics that the seraphim uh, have. So we know that present there is God the Father on the throne. Around the throne are 24 elders. In the midst of the throne are seraphim. And the question is, where is this taking place? Okay, it's inside a building. The question is, what is that building, and where in that building is this event transpiring? We don't have to guess. Let's go to verse 5, the verse that we skipped. It says in verse 5, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices, and now listen, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne. Now, where in the sanctuary were the seven lamps of fire? They were in the holy place. So this event is taking place in the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary because this is happening in heaven. Now, it also tells us what the seven lamps represent or symbolize. See, you have the seven lamps, but it tells us what the seven lamps symbolize. The verse continues saying, Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are what? which are the seven spirits of God. Now, when it says seven spirits of God, there are not seven Holy Spirits. The number seven represents totality, completeness, fullness. In other words, the fullness of the Spirit is present there. Now, there's another clue that tells us where this event is taking place. Revelation 5, verse 8. Revelation 5 is describing events that are taking place there in the same location. Now, notice Revelation chapter uh, 4 and ver- uh, chapter 5, excuse me, and verse 8. It says here, Now when he had taken the scroll, this is happening before the throne, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp, and now listen carefully, and golden bowls full of what? Full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Where was incense offered in the sanctuary? Incense was offered at the altar of incense in the holy place of the sanctuary. So we have two clues that indicate that this scene is taking place in the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. First, the seven lamps of fire, which represent the fullness of the Spirit. And secondly, we have the altar of incense where incense is being offered along with the prayers of the saints. So this scene is taking place in the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. Now, I want you to notice that those beings that are present, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, are singing a song, and the song has a central theme. Revelation chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, tells us what they were singing about and who they were singing about. It says there in verse 9, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, now notice the theme of their song, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The the song is honoring God the Father as the what? As the creator. Now, there's some, some things in Revelation 4 that are absent. First of all, there is no mention in chapter 4 of redemption. The concept does not appear in chapter 4. Another thing that does not appear in chapter 4 is the angelic hosts. You find no reference to the 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands being there around the throne. And in the third place, there is no reference to Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 4. In other words, we're impressed by what's there, but we are also impressed by what's not there. 
The question is, where were the angelic hosts? Where was Jesus in chapter 4? And why is this song a song in honor of the Creator rather than a song in honor of the Redeemer? I believe the reason is, and as we study along we're going to see this, the reason is that in Revelation chapter 4, the heavenly throne room is being prepared for the arrival of the war hero who has just been on earth, he's battled with the enemy, and he has overcome the enemy. And all heaven in chapter 4 is preparing the heavenly throne room for the arrival of the war hero on his return from the battlefield. Now, you might be wondering, you're saying, now, wait a minute, Pastor, wasn't Jesus Christ the creator? Uh, Yes, Jesus Christ was the creator. But Jesus executed the Father's will. Now, did you notice here in verse 11, it says, you created all things, and by your will they exist, and they were created. In other words, the Father created through Jesus Christ the Son. We might say that the Father was the architect and Jesus was the master builder. They were both involved, but Revelation 4 verse 11 says that the Father, uh, that things were created by the Father's will. In other words, the Father devised the plan. So when chapter 4 ends, you have this heavenly scene, God the Father sitting on the throne, 24 elders gathered there, the the seraphim and by extension the cherubim are also there, and uh, the Holy Spirit in His fullness is present there before the throne, absent the heavenly hosts, Jesus Christ, and any reference to redemption. But that is now going to change. Let's go to chapter 5 and verse 1. I saw in the right, and I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. So I want you to imagine the individual sitting on the, on the throne, God the Father. He has in his right hand a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Let's go on to verse 2. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is Worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. Now that word worthy means who is qualified. In other words, there are certain characteristics that qualify an individual to break the seals and to open the scroll so that the contents of the scroll can be read. Not just anyone can unfurl the scroll, break the seals, and reveal the contents of the scroll. There is someone who is uniquely qualified to do this. And now there's a universal crisis that ensues. Notice verse 3. And no one in heaven. Could God the Father break the seals and unfurl the scroll? No. Was he in heaven at this point? Yes, he was. So it says, no one in heaven, or on the earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So John is observing this scene. And there's no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, no one in the universe, who is able to break the seals and to open the scroll. And so now John reacts. Verse 4. So I wept much. Now in Greek, there's two main words for weeping. One is a weaker word, and one means to to weep but by crying out. For example, this word weep that is used here, the Greek word klio, is the one that is used to speak of Peter, who after he denied Christ went out and he wept bitterly. It's the same word that's used to describe the, the ruler of the synagogue when his daughter died says that people were wailing bitterly. It's the same word that is used uh, when the, uh, to describe the disciples when they mourned the death of Jesus Christ. And it's used also to speak about Jesus mourning over Jerusalem as he descended down the Mount of Olives towards the eastern gate. In other words, this word is a strong word. John is wailing. That would be a better translation. He's crying out. Is there something very important in this scroll? Is it a matter of life and death that the scroll be opened and that the contents of the scroll be revealed? Absolutely. But there's no one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth that can break the seals, unfurl the scroll, and reveal the contents of the scroll. 
Now the question must be asked then, what were the contents of the scroll? What did that scroll have that was so important that John wails because no one was found to break the seals and to open the scroll? Well, there's no doubt whatsoever that what you're dealing with here is a will or a testament. Let me read you a statement from uh, Kenneth Strand, who many years ago was my teacher at the seminary. He passed away. In his groundbreaking book, Interpreting the Book of Revelation, page 55, he explains uh, scrolls such as the one that is described here in Revelation chapter 5. He says this, The central item, the seven-sealed scroll, portrays a will or testament, for that is precisely what such a seven-sealed document was in Roman law in John's day. So they've discovered ancient testaments and wills from from Rome. They have historical records that indicate that this is the way that Romans uh, wrote wills. Basically what they would do is they would write the will, they would uh, roll up the scroll, then they would put seven pieces of string around the scroll, and where the two ends of the string met, they either would put a blob of wax that stuck to the two ends and to the scroll, or they would put a blob of clay, of wet clay, that would harden and then stick to the two ends and stick to the scroll. This was a way of making sure that nobody tampered with the contents of the will or of the testament. And so he continues saying, the central item, the seven-sealed scroll, portrays a will or testament. For this, that is precisely what such a seven-sealed document was in Roman law in John's day. We find then that the picture we have in the subdivision of Revelation 4.1 to 8.1 is a court scene in which a will or testament is to be opened. In the context of Revelation, this will or testament would be a title deed, as it were, to man's lost inheritance. Do you remember we talked about the losing of the inheritance yesterday? That only Jesus could recover? So basically, this is, this is the title deed, he says, to the lost possession of man. He continues saying, as it were, to man, man's lost inheritance, an inheritance which has been repurchased by Christ the Lamb. Thus the scroll is a book of destiny. The opening of it means inheritance in God's kingdom. Its remaining closed means forfeiture. No wonder John wept when he thought no one could open the scroll. Let me ask you, can, any, can just anyone open a will or a testament? Or is there somebody that's been specifically delegated that responsibility? What does the will reveal? What does the testament reveal? It reveals who will what? Who will inherit and what they will inherit? And it can only be opened by a qualified person that has been designated to do that. And so what we have here is really the will or the testament of the human race that reveals the decisions that people have made in the course of human history. And by those decisions, they determine whether they will inherit eternal life or whether they will suffer death. And so John says, if the scroll is not open, no one will inherit It cannot be revealed who will inherit the lost possession. Now, allow me to read you a couple of statements from Ellen White. It's amazing how Ellen White caught this nuance that I'm sharing with you. The first statement is found in Manuscript Releases, Volume 9 and Page 7. Manuscript Releases, Volume 9 and Page 7. Listen to how Ellen White describes the contents of this scroll. Really, this scroll contains the whole history of the human race and the decisions that individuals have made within the course of history, which, when the scroll is open, will reveal what their inheritance will be based on their decision or their response. This is what she says. There in his open hand lay the book, the role of the history of God's providences, the prophetic history of nations and the church. What does the scroll contain? The prophetic history of what? Of nations and the church. But she specifies even more. She says, herein was contained the divine utterances, his authority, his commandments, his laws, the whole symbolic counsel of the eternal, and the history of all ruling powers in the nations. In symbolic language was contained in that role, 
Listen carefully now. The influence of every nation, tongue, and people from the beginning of Earth's history to its close. In other words, it is a full and complete world history that is contained in that scroll. And the scroll reveals individual decisions that were made in the course of history that will determine what the inheritance will be. Now, there's another statement from Ellen White, even more specific, where Ellen White is talking about a specific historical event that was written in that scroll. This statement is found in Christ's Object Lessons, page 294. You remember when Pilate brought uh, Jesus and Barabbas and put them side by side, and he said to the multitude, who do you want me to release, Jesus or Barabbas? What did they say? Release unto us Barabbas. Now listen to what Ellen White says about that specific moment in history. She says, thus the Jewish leaders made their choice. Their decision was registered. That is when they made the decision, right? Their decision was registered in the book which John saw in the hand of him that sat upon the throne. The book which no man could open. And now notice what she says. She gives some very important clues here. She says, in all its vindictiveness, this decision will appear before them. Before whom? Those who made that decision, right? She says, this decision will appear before them in the day when this book is unsealed by the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, There are several important things in this statement. Number one, had the scroll been opened when Ellen White wrote this in 1900? No, because she says when the scroll is opened. It was still future in 1900. Are you with me? Now, does she say that those that made the decision will see the result of their decision? Yes. Where are all those people who made that decision today? They are all what? They're all dead. But in order to see their decision, they would have to be what? Alive. Which means that the scroll is going to be unfurled when these people live again. And when are they going to live again? They are going to live again after the thousand years. Are you following me or not? Now, I'm going to read you an amazing statement from Ellen White. Uh, before we get to the end, where Ellen White describes the moment when this scroll is unfurled. But now let's go back to Revelation chapter 5. So what is contained in that scroll? The whole history of the human race and individual decisions that have made within the course of history that will determine whether an individual is what? Saved or lost. What their inheritance will be based on their decisions within the course of human history. So there's this crisis. Nobody can open the will or testament. So if the will or testament isn't opened, nobody will inherit. Notice verse 5. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, now notice two tenses, has prevailed. That word prevailed Unfortunately, it's translated differently in Revelation 5 than in Revelation in other places in Revelation, like Revelation 3.21. Really, it's the same word, overcome. Same Greek word. So it can be translated, the root of David has overcome. Where did he overcome? He overcame at the cross. And what does that give him a right to do? It says, has overcome, and now this is future, to what? To open the scroll, and to loose its seven seals. What is it that gives Jesus Christ the right to break the seals and to open the scroll and to reveal its contents? The facts that he what? The fact that he overcame. Now notice verse 6. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb. Now, was the lamb there in chapter 4? No. But he's there in chapter 5. Where did this lamb just come from? It must be from earth. Is the lamb alive in this scene? Yeah. But what characteristics does the lamb have? 
It says, stood a lamb as though it had been what? At this point, has the lamb died? Yes. Is the lamb alive? Yes. So has the death and resurrection of Christ taken place? Yes. And so it says, as though it had been slain, and now comes a very important detail. Don't miss this point. In in Revelation chapter 4, it says that the seven spirits were before the throne, right? But now I want you to notice that there's a change. It says, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, what? Sent out into all the earth. So in chapter 4, the fullness of the spirit is there. But in chapter 5, when the lamb presents himself, what happens? The spirit is sent to the earth. What historical moment is being described here? What happened on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was sent to the earth, that was present there before Jesus arrived in chapter 4. Now, in case you're wondering whether Jesus actually came there, notice in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 7, it says, then he what? Oh, he came, so, so he must not have been there before. He approaches the one who was on the throne. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And so when Jesus takes, takes the, the scroll in the hand of the one who is seated on the throne, now you have a song of praise. But it's a song of praise not about creation now. It's a song of praise about the Redeemer. And it's being sung by the living creatures and the, and the 24 elders. Notice Revelation chapter 5 and verses 8 through 10. It says, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, and by the way, there's a translation problem here. And um, I'll try and touch upon this in our sessions tomorrow. Uh, you know, the, the King James and the New King James Version are good, good versions of the Bible, but they are not perfect translations. I don't know if you're aware of that. Uh, I believe that the Texas Receptus is the best manuscript trail, but even the Texas Receptus is not perfect. However, I don't believe that the King James translation is always the best translation. There's nothing wrong with checking out m- more modern versions when there's no problem with the manuscript trail. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Now, there's a mistranslation in the King James because it gives the impression that the 24 elders are actually, they were redeemed from the earth and that they're going to reign upon the earth. But with the exception of the King James and the New King James, every single other version, doesn't matter which one you check, says that the 24 elders and the four living creatures are not the redeemed, they are singing about the redeemed. So I'm going to make a little change here in the New King James. I'm going to read it the way that all modern versions read it. And by the way, it is the correct reading. Because Ellen White identifies the 24, and I'll just throw this out, you know, if you give me your email, you're going to get my full notes. There's about, there's about 40 pages on the 24 elders. Very meticulous study. Ellen White identifies the 24 elders as the highest of angels that have been placed to represent the worlds that never sinned. So the 24 elders are the representatives of the worlds that never sinned that were invited. They're the members of the heavenly council that were invited to be present there when Jesus ascended to heaven. Now, if they are the highest of angels, then they cannot be redeemed and they will not reign upon the earth. Are you following me? Now, this might be different than what you've heard before, but I've studied it out meticulously. And, uh, and I think as you read the material, it's going to make sense. And so it says in verse, um, in verse 8, once again, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy, notice, you are qualified, in other words, to take the scroll and to open its seals... For, that means because, right? For you were slain. What qualifies Jesus? Did he pay the redemption price by becoming one of us? Is is he our next of kin? Did he live the perfect life we should live? Yes. Did he die the death that we should die? Yes. So did Jesus have the right to repurchase the lost possession? So it says, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For, that is because you were slain 
and have redeemed. And this is the way it reads in all, all modern versions. And have redeemed people to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made them kings and priests to our God and they shall reign upon the earth. Just check me out. You'll see that every single version with the exception of the King James translates this as the elders and living creatures singing about the redeemed. They are not the redeemed. And incidentally, here the elders and the living creatures are singing this song. What are the living creatures? Seraphim. Would the seraphim be singing, you redeemed us and we shall reign upon the earth? Absolutely not. That's another clue that there's a translation problem that we have here. Now, suddenly appear the angelic hosts now in chapter 5. Jesus has shown up. He's the Redeemer. There's this song in honor of the Redeemer. But now the angelic hosts appear. 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Notice verses 11 and 12. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, notice also the song of redemption, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then verse 13 says, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So now the Lamb has arrived. He takes the scroll. There's this song by every creature in the universe that's singing the victory of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to put everything together by reading a passage that was written by Ellen White. Uh, you might be wondering, well, you know, all of this seems to fit together. But uh, is it the correct interpretation of the passage? Well, I'm thankful to God that uh, he has given us, in the writings of Ellen White, the last three pages of the book, The Desire of Ages. That's going to take me a while to read this, but immediately you're going to see Revelation 4 and 5 clearly comment, uh, commented upon. This is... Desire of Ages, 833 to 835. And you know what's interesting? As we read this passage, Ellen White never uses the symbolism of Revelation 4 and 5. She never speaks, for example, of four living creatures. She never speaks of 24 elders. She never, uh, she never actually refers to the lamb as though it had been slain. What she does is she interprets the symbols with matter-of-fact language. So if you, were, if, you, if you wanted to find out what Ellen White had to say about the living creatures and the 24 elders, you could try and search it and you wouldn't find anything. And so you'd say Ellen White doesn't have anything to say about Revelation 4 and 5. She does. But she doesn't use the symbols. She explains the symbols in matter-of-fact language. And that's going to come through clearly. Listen to what she says. They're speaking about the ascension of Christ. All heaven was waiting to welcome the Savior to the celestial courts. Who is all heaven there? How about the Father? The Holy Spirit? The cherubim and seraphim? The representatives of the worlds that never sinned? Absolutely. She says, all heaven was waiting to welcome the Savior to the celestial courts. Now listen carefully. As he ascended, he led the way. And the multitude of captives set free at his resurrection followed. Can those who resurrected with Jesus be the 24 elders? Why not? Because they were already there before Jesus arrives in chapter 5 at his ascension. Those who resurrected with Christ did not go to heaven before he did. And so that's another clue that shows that the, the traditional interpretation that the that the 24 elders are those who resurrected with Jesus. It just doesn't fit with the description of Revelation 4 and 5. So it says, As he ascended, he led the way, and the multitude of captives set free, and his resurrection followed. The heavenly... Now notice where the angels were. They, they, even, even the angelic hosts weren't up there, because she says, The angelic host, with shouts and acclamations of praise and celestial song, attended the joyous train. 
So where were, the, where were the angelic hosts in Revelation 4? They came to pick up Jesus. Now listen to this. As they drew near to the city of God, the challenge is given by the escorting angels. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Joyfully, the, sentinel, the waiting sentinels respond, Who is this King of glory? This they say not because they know not who he is, but because they would hear the answer of exalted praise. The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Why would he be called the Lord mighty in battle? Because he's coming back from the battlefield. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Again is heard the challenge. Who is this King of glory? For the angels never weary of hearing his name exalted. The escorting angels make reply, The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Then the portals of the city of God are opened wide, and the angelic throng, see these are the hosts of angels, the angelic throng sweep through the gates amid a burst of rapturous music. Now listen to this. Here comes the key paragraph. There is the throne. Is there a throne in Revelation 4? Yes, there is the throne, and around it the rainbow of promise. Was there a rainbow of promise there? Yes, there was. There are cherubim and seraphim. Who would those be in the symbolism of Revelation 4 and 5? The four living creatures. She says, there are cherubim and seraphim. And then she goes on to say, she uses three phrases to describe the same group. She says, the commanders of the angel hosts, the sons of God, the representatives of the unfallen worlds are assembled. Who would those be? The 24 elders. Then she continues saying, the heavenly council, before which Lucifer had accused God and his son, the representatives of those sinless realms over which Satan had thought to establish his dominion, all are there to welcome the Redeemer. So is God the Father there? Yes. Are cherubim and seraphim there? Are the 24 elders, the representatives of the worlds there? Yes, they are. But now notice how the, how the plot thickens. They are eager to celebrate his triumph and to glorify their king. But he waves them back. Not yet. He cannot now receive the coronet of glory and the royal robe. He enters into the presence of his father. Remember it says that he came and took the scroll out of the hand of the one who was seated on the throne. It says... He enters into the presence of his father. Now notice how he enters. He points to his wounded head, his pierced side, the marred feet. How has Jesus presented himself? Ellen White does not say a lamb. He des she describes Jesus, the wounds on his body. She is interpreting what the lamb, as though it had been slain, means. Are you with me? So it says, he points to his wounded head, the pierced side, the marred feet. He lifts his hands, bearing the print of the nails. He points to the tokens of his triumph. He presents to God the wave sheaf, those raised with him as representatives of that great multitude who shall come forth from the grave at his second coming. So are those who resurrected with Jesus the 24 elders? No. Can't be. There's too many, there's too many inconsistencies. But, but old traditions die hard. And there are many of those traditions that we have in the Adventist church. I'm going to share one with you in our next session. The idea that, that you know, God, it was God's plan that Saul of Tarsus be the successor of Judas. You know, you find that repeated again and again in the Adventist publications, you know. But, but the disciples, they, they rushed to do something too quickly. And so they elected Matthias. Interesting tradition. But well, that's exactly what it is, a tradition. And it doesn't square with fact. Now, she continues saying, he listen carefully, he presents the wave sheaf, those raised with him as representatives of that great multitude who shall come forth from the grave at his second coming. He approaches the Father. See, it says he comes in Revelation 5, verse 7. He approaches the Father with whom there is joy over one sinner that repents, who rejoices over one with singing. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, the Father and the Son had united in a covenant 
to redeem man if he should be overcome by Satan. See, is Jesus the one who is able to take the scroll and to reveal who is going to inherit with him based on his purchasing the lost possession? Yes. Now notice what she continues saying. They had clasped their hands in a solemn pledge that Christ should become the surety for the human race. This pledge Christ has fulfilled. When upon the cross he cried out, It is finished! He addressed the Father. The compact had been fully carried out. Now he declares, what does the testament reveal? Who's going to be with him, right? Who's going to inherit? Now notice, the compact had been fully carried out. Now he declares, Father, it is finished. I have done thy will, O my God. I have completed the work of redemption. Now don't argue about whether the work of redemption was completed at the cross. Ellen White has statements where she says that the the work of redemption was completed at the cross. This is one of them. It's the application of what Jesus did on the cross that is not completed yet. The individual application of, of the life and death of Christ to repentant and confessing sinners. Are you with me? And this is where the Christian world is all messed up. Because it's all the cross, the cross. Yeah, but it's your response to the cross where Jesus takes his life and his death and places them to your account. And then God looks upon you as if you had never sinned. And you know, I'm amazed. I stand amazed when I go to Adventist meetings and and I ask the question, uh, you know, uh, did Jesus forgive our sins at the cross? And everybody answers, yes. Jesus did not forgive our sins at the cross. He made provision to forgive our sins based on what he did at the cross. Because my Bible tells me if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the Apostle Peter said on the day of Pentecost, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And this is long. This is several days after the cross. The New Testament is clear that forgiveness comes when we individually claim through repentance and confession and faith in Jesus what Jesus did through his life and through his death. Is this clear? Now she continues saying, If thy justice is satisfied, Jesus is speaking to his Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. What is the passion of Christ? He wants his own to be with him. Is that what the will or testament reveals? Absolutely. Now listen, here here it reaches the climax. The voice of God is heard proclaiming that justice is satisfied. Satan is vanquished. Christ's toiling, struggling ones on earth are accepted in the Beloved. Before the heavenly angels and the representatives of the world, of the unfallen worlds, they are declared justified where he is, there his church shall be. That's what the Willer Testament reveals. She's interpreting. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Now listen carefully. The Father's arms encircle his Son. And the word is given. Let all the angels of God worship him. And now, surprise, surprise, Ellen White is going to quote Revelation 5, 12, and 13. With joy unutterable, rulers and principalities and powers acknowledge the supremacy of the Prince of Life. The angel hosts prostrate themselves before him while the glad shout fills all the courts of heaven Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Revelation 5, verse 12. Songs of triumph mingle with the music from angel harps till heaven seems to overflow with joy and praise. Love has conquered. The lost is found. Heaven rings with voices in lofty strains proclaiming blessing and honor and glory and power. Be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Revelation 5, verse 13. Isn't that a magnificent interpretation of Revelation 4 and 5? She makes it so simple. She doesn't use the symbolism, but she interprets the symbolism to let us know that this is happening at the moment of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, let's talk just for a few brief moments. We have about five minutes. I want to read you another passage that describes the final unfurling of the scroll. You know, that scroll is going to be opened 
after the millennium. Because those who participated in saying, release unto us Barabbas, that's the time when they're going to be alive, right? right. Now listen, you remember that I read from Ellen White that really this, uh, uh, what, contained, what is contained in this scroll is really the whole history of the, of the world? Remember we read that? The whole history of the nations and the church? Now, in Great Controversy, Ellen White describes, see if I can find the page here, Great Controversy 666 to 669. She'll never forget where she comments about the scroll, 666. That's coincidence. Listen carefully. Above the cross, above the throne is revealed the cross. And like a panoramic view, I might say in high def. Listen carefully. Appear the scenes of Adam's temptation and fall and the successive steps in the great plan of redemption. What is being shown above the city in panoramic view? The whole history of the world. That's the unfurling of the scroll. See, she's not talking about the scroll, but she interprets when the scroll is going to be unfurled and what it has. She continues saying, the Savior's lowly birth, his early life in simplicity and obedience, his baptism in the Jordan, the fast and temptation in the wilderness, his public ministry, unfolding to men's Men, heaven's most precious blessings, the days crowded with deeds of love and mercy, the nights of prayer and watching in the solitude of the mountains, the plottings of envy, hate, and malice which repaid his benefits, the awful mysterious agony in Gethsemane beneath the crushing weight of the sins of the whole world, his betrayal into the hands of the murderous mob, the fearful events of that night of horror, the unresisting prisoner forsaken by his best loved disciples, rudely hurried through the streets of Jerusalem, the Son of God exultingly displayed before Annas, arraigned in the high priest's palace, in the judgment hall of Pilate, before the cowardly and cruel Herod, mocked, insulted, tortured, and condemned to die, all are vividly portrayed. So what is the scroll revealing? The scroll is a symbolic scroll, but really it represents a reenactment of the whole history of the world. Now, what kind of technology must God have to register or to record the whole history of the world with all the decisions that were made in the course of human history? It's a technology that uh, has not been discovered yet. She continues saying, And now before the swaying multitude are revealed the final scenes, the patient sufferer treading the path to Calvary, the prince of heaven hanging upon the cross, the haughty priests and the jeering rubble, deriding his expiring agony, the supernatural darkness, the heaving of the earth, the rent rocks, the open graves, marking the moment when the world's Redeemer yielded up his life. The awful spectacle appears just as it was. Wow. Satan, his angels, and his subjects have no power to turn from the picture of their own work. Each actor recalls the part which he performed. Herod, remember those who crucified him and so on? Herod, who slew the innocent children of Bethlehem, that he might destroy the king of Israel. The base Herodias, upon whose guilty soul rests the blood of John the Baptist. The weak time-serving Pilate, the mocking soldiers, the priests and rulers, and the maddened throng who cried his blood be on us and on our children, all behold the enormity of their guilt. They vainly seek to hide from the divine majesty of his countenance, outshining the glory of the sun, while the redeemed cast their crowns at the Savior's feet, exclaiming, He died for me. Then she describes early church history. She moves from Christ to early church history. She says, amid the ransom throng are the apostles of Christ, the heroic Paul, the ardent Peter, the loved and loving John, and their true-hearted brethren, and with them the vast host of martyrs, while outside the walls with every vile and abominable thing are those by whom they were persecuted, imprisoned, and slain. There is Nero, that monster of cruelty and vice, beholding the joy and exaltation of those whom he once tortured, and in whose extremest anguish he found satanic delight. His mother is there to witness the result of her work, to see how the evil stamp of character transmitted to her son. The passions encouraged and developed by her influence and example have borne fruit in crimes that caused the world to shudder. And then she moves on to the 1260 years. There are papist priests and prelates. 
who claimed to be Christ's ambassadors, yet employed the rack, the dungeon, and the stake to control the consciences of his people. There are the proud pontiffs who exalted themselves above God and presumed to change the law of the Most High. Those pretended fathers of the church have an account to render to God for which they would fain be excused. Too late, they are made to see that the omniscient one is jealous of his law and that he will in no wise clear the guilty. They learn now that Christ identifies his interest with that of his suffering people. And they feel the force of his own words, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of these, the least my brethren, you have done it unto me. So he's going to show the wicked in contrast to the righteous and why the righteous are in the city. And then she says, the whole wicked world stand arraigned at the bar of God on the charge of high treason against the government of heaven. They have none to plead their cause. They are without excuse. And the sentence of eternal death is pronounced against them based on what is contained in the scroll. Of course, that scroll also contains the works of the righteous, and that is examined pre-advent. That's examined in heaven by the heavenly beings. But it is finally unfurled, and it is finally opened before the wicked. Now, do you know, folks, that very soon there is going to be a greater celebration even than when Jesus ascended? Once again, God the Father will be in heaven sitting on his throne. You know, that's one of the other ideas we have. People say, when Jesus comes, his Father's coming with him. No, no, the Bible says he will send forth Jesus in Acts chapter 3, speaking about the second coming. Father will be on his throne. Cherubim and seraphim will be there. The representatives of the world will be invited to be present. The Holy Spirit will be present there because his work has been finished on earth. And then... The Father will send forth Jesus with all of the hosts of angels to come and pick up the rest of the redeemed. Those who are alive and remain and those who have died in Christ. Jesus above the earth will resurrect the dead in Christ and the living righteous along with them will be caught up in the clouds to meet Jesus in the air and then Jesus will begin his ascension to heaven with all of his redeemed and as he nears the holy city, Psalm 24 will be sung again. Open up ye gates, and the King of glory will come in, but not only by himself. Blessed are those who keep his commandments, that they might have the right to the tree of life and enter through the gates into the city. And God's people, along with Jesus, will enter the holy city amidst a a, a scene of explosive praise on the part of all of the heavenly beings. And God's people will be welcomed home. The parable of the lost sheep illustrates this. See, we usually think of the parable as being, you know, if somebody goes astray from the church, the pastor or somebody needs to go and bring them back to church. It has that application, but it has a greater application according to the spirit of prophecy. The 99 represents the worlds that never sinned. Yes, the representatives of the worlds are the 24 elders. The one sheep that went astray represents this world that fell into sin. The act of the shepherd leaving the safety of the 99 and coming to a dangerous world to rescue his sheep represents Christ leaving heaven to come to rescue the one world that went astray in God's universe. But the story doesn't end there. The Bible says that when he rescues the sheep, when Christ rescues the world, he brings it back upon his shoulders to the heavenly throne room and he says to all of his relatives and his friends, come! See, this is the party. Come! Gather together! And celebrate with me, because the sheep that was lost has been found. Don't miss the party. (laughs) There's nothing in this world that's worth hanging on to and missing the party and living forever and eternally with Jesus Christ. And so we know very clearly what happened after Jesus ascended to heaven. Now in our next session, we're going to take five minutes, literal, not prophetic, we will discuss a little bit more fully what happened to Jesus when he arrived because there's, there's a ceremony that took place when Jesus arrived in heaven which is not described specifically in Revelation 4 and 5. So let's take five minutes. It's 10 to 11 and I will begin at 5 to 11, Law of Medes and Persians. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip 
young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.